Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. You know, there's something this week that I've been trying to remind myself that I I wanted to share with you that I think can be a good reminder of encouragement, and that is the founder of Christianity. In some of his parting words, he said, I go and prepare a place for you. And he made a promise that he would return. And a question some should be asking is, did he forget his promise, or is there something we've missed? And unfortunately, some have fallen into a trap. Well, he left us work to do, and we have to finish that work, yet we have in the New Testament that the gospel has already been into all the world. And we know later, thousands of years later, it was written again, the gospel went again into all the world. So I know we usually hold on to that idea, we've got to take the gospel into all the world. But I'm a little more convinced on this idea of Jesus seems obsessed with gardening, and he keeps talking about these harvests. And he keeps saying there's going to be these two harvests. And so something in this story of good and evil says a harvest on two sides of a story are ripening. And I don't know about you, but it seems like the harvest is ripening. You see this polarization. Jesus, he was was really intent. Don't pull up weeds you think are weeds. Somebody you know or somebody in your life or somebody in the church, you say, oh, they're a weed. And he says, be careful. You don't know where people are at until that fruit fruit ripens. So I just want to encourage you to hold on to that promise that that same Jesus said, I have plans for you, plans for a hope and a future. Don't forget that. So this morning, I'm glad you're here. I believe you came for a blessing. And I pray the Lord is going to speak to us through some of the things he's helped me see and understand. And I want to be the first to tell you, I do not have it all figured out. I'm chewing on this. As you hear it, know that I'm chewing on it just the same. So we're going to dig in together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the very easy and and perhaps almost attractive thing this morning would have been to just keep sleeping. You know that we run a hard week, whether it's as as students in classes or as, as workers on a job or as homemakers or somewhere in between, Lord, you know that we... We work hard through the week, and sometimes on Sabbath we're tired. Yet, Lord, you woke us up this morning, and some reason you impressed us to come here to show up, and we believe there's a special blessing in store for us, and we just want to ask that your spirit will do some translating as I talk, and that will personalize this message to each of us, that you'll help us understand the moment in which we live, and to be able to, through all the noise, listen to your voice, as a friend would would speak to us. So we thank you because we, we believe you're going to answer that prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we started on a topic and we started studying Romans chapter 13. So I hope you've got your Bibles again. You know, there's a question on many minds right now, especially after the second convention this week who's going to be president of the United States? Right? That's, that's what a lot of people are asking. And basically, both parties are saying, if we don't win, the country is doomed. And so you hear a lot of fear being preached from both sides. I'm telling you, if that guy wins, 
your way of life is over. If that guy wins, your way of life is over. And so Jesus' disciples, you know, they got a lot of questions they can ask him. And as they're trying to figure out, Jesus seems like he's saying he's not going to be here. Is he going to die? This is all strange. They ask him, you know, tell us about that moment just before you return. And you can imagine Jesus could have started and gone into a lot of areas. And what are those first three words he says? Anybody remember? Be not deceived. Don't be deceived. Strangely enough, his biggest passion was, at that moment, just don't be deceived. As if to say, there is going to be so many things vying for your attention. Do not be deceived. You know, there was a uh, statesman that said, the great masses of the people will more easily fall victims to a big lie than to a small one. And I hate to have to quote him two weeks in a row, but that was Adolf Hitler as well. (laughs) A big lie. The bigger the lie, the easier it is to deceive. So there's this idea, you may have heard it before. If you're trying to manipulate someone, you don't necessarily want to attack them on one side, And not necessarily on another side, but if your end goal is, I'd really like to manipulate you to go there, then there's this idea of thesis, stating something, antithesis, stating something against that idea, with the hopes that you'll run from both into an area we would call synthesis, okay? Scripture talks about this. Turn with me to Amos, the book of Amos in the Old Testament chapter 5 and verses 18 and 19. And why do I bring this up? Because we're going to get more into Romans 13 today. And in this moment that is so hyper-political in this nation, depending on which channel you turn on, depending on who you're following on social media, you are very likely to hear one side of this equation. And Scripture talks about this idea. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It says it like this. What sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here? You ever hear anybody say that? Oh, if only the second coming were to happen. I just want to see the Lord return. Okay, well, it seems good. But then it goes on. You have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, you will be like a man, and then listen to this, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. Or John chapter 16, verse 2, if you want to turn there with me. John chapter 16 and verse 2. Just talking about these writers of Scripture talking about a day in the future. This one's quite fascinating. John chapter 16 and verse 2 says this. Let me, let me start with, with uh, 
verse one. It says, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. In other words, Jesus is saying, I just wanna tell you these things so that you aren't lost along the way, you don't trip up. And then he says this, talking about the future. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God a sacrifice. That somebody says, you know what? If I kill you, God is gonna smile on me. So we have these two sides in America right now. Jesus also had two sides that he navigated through. Had the Pharisees, that was kind of the conservative side, and the Sadducees, they were on the more liberal side. And Jesus had to contend in this environment. And you'll notice he didn't pick a side. And so we're talking about this idea in Romans chapter 13. Turn with me there again. Romans chapter 13. What do we do when the laws of the land come in conflict with the laws of God and of your conscience? And we looked at some examples last week, but I want to just read these first couple verses again. I'm reading, this This is the New King James, Romans chapter 13. There's different ways this is worded, and we're going to dig into this a little bit today. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. All right? So we had this professed Christian in Germany. If you've heard this read to you at that moment, under the regime of Hitler, do you feel like God is speaking to submit to the heinous acts of this leader? Sometimes we, we look in the American context and we think, well, our leaders are civilized, not Hitler not Mussolini, not, and so sometimes I think we can take this and say, this is absolutely true. Well, what about in Nazi Germany? Well, and we talked about that a little bit last week. We looked at examples of people God smiled upon, and if scripture being consistent, he blessed when they rebelled against the government. We looked at Moses' parents. We looked at the three Hebrews in Babylon. We looked at Daniel under the Medo-Persian realm. We looked at the disciples under the Greek and Roman empires. And then I I found another story this week I was looking at. Jesus' parents rebel against the government and head to Egypt where he grows up in Egypt for a few years. So you have all these examples that makes you say, well, is scripture inconsistent, which some want to say, or is there something deeper here? Now, I think it's interesting as we read this, you could quickly ask a question if we just read on the surface, Well, which governing authorities? Who has the authority, the hierarchy structure, let's just say in our nation? And I was pretty fascinated to look into this, and it was pretty interesting how divided it is. Well, the governor of your state has ultimate authority. And just as passionately on another side, well, the president, of course, he's the governor of the governors. Well, what about the mayor? Can the mayor supersede the governor? And you get into this idea where it's important, I think, we remember in the founding of America, you had these two ideas that were pretty important. 
we're going to create a country with no king and we're going to have a church with no pope. We're going to let individuals self-govern as best as they can. Okay, so that's the idea. All right, so I want to show you something on the screen here. This is the original seal proposed for the United States. It was actually proposed on July 4, 1776. So they're thinking, we have to have a great seal. Other nations have one. We should have one. And so the Congress comes together, and there's a committee. We call it the First Committee. Consisted of three individuals you might have heard of. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. Each of them proposed a design for the seal of America. Franklin chose an allegorical scene from the book Exodus. He described it in his notes as Moses standing on the shore, extending his hand over the sea, thereby causing the same to overwhelm Pharaoh, who was sitting in an open chariot, a crown on his head and a sword in his hand, raised from a pillar of fire in the clouds, reaching to Moses to express that he acts by command of the deity. And then he says, and the motto should be, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And Jefferson suggested a depiction of the children of Israel in the wilderness, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night for the front of the seal. And so they start to work on this, and that absolutely got outvoted. (laughs) And that's why we don't see that as our seal today. hundred years later, Adventist pioneer and prolific writer Ellen White, you can take it down, she starts to write about the prophecy of Revelation 13, this idea that one day, this country founded on ideas like that would then become a country that restricts and removes freedom of conscience. Basically where it would become obedience to tyrants and rebellion to God. And she writes, and I quote, there is the prospect before us. And listen very carefully because we're going to dig into this. There is the prospect before us to defend the law of God, which is being made void by the laws of men. This, and then she quotes, this Bible text will be quoted to us. And then she quotes Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. The powers that be are, are ordained of God. Now I want you to think with me. We're going down a rabbit hole. If that Bible text she writes, would be quoted to us. And I would say from from Scripture-believing persons quoting Scripture, you usually have to do that to Scripture-believing persons. Okay? How does that paint the governmental structure when this prophecy happens? Now hear me out. Let's go back in time. Do you see the Christian right under leadership that does not align with their values saying, Daryl, you should submit to the governing authorities? When as we see today in the political realm, these ideologies are very different. So you hear what I'm saying? Do you see someone coming to you, and I guess I need to be very explicit, do you see a Republican Christian coming to you and saying, Ralph, you need to submit 
to the Democratic president. I'm just asking a question. Chew on that. So if we dig on that idea, because I think the answer to that probably lets you in on the structure of authority when the final moments of prophecy are fulfilled. And there's a few questions you have to ask in that. Who has the ultimate governing authority in the nation? Is it your governor? Is it the president? Is it Congress? The Supreme Court? Because if that Bible text is being quoted to you, you have to wonder what the structure is like. But in Romans 13, we're going to look a little deeper at the word that is translated there. Some versions say submitting to the authorities, submitting to governing authorities, submitting to uh, the powers, the ruling powers. But listen to the definition of the Greek word there, exousia, which means, and here's some of the words, privilege, delegated, freedom, liberty, authority, power. So let's go look at a few Greek philosophers who use this language and just see how they use the word that's been translated as power, authority. Let's go to Plato. Plato, we find the Greek words he uses to describe freedom. Two words. Eleutheros, being liberal and free. We're getting a little intellectual here, which is not my style, but hear me out. And exousia which he says is the freedom or the power to do something. You'd think that Plato would understand the Greek language pretty well. And he does not use those words we read as power or authority like we interpret them. He, he denotes it as a, a power to choose. All right, let's go to Aristotle, another Greek philosopher who we could argue, probably knew the Greek language pretty well. He says it like this, the right, exousia, is the right, and that's the way he uses the word, to do anything one wishes. And the Greek glossary of Aristotelian terms states that exousia means your right. So this Greek word exousia is considered to be one of the strongest words in the Greek language representing the right or freedom to choose, the right to have liberty. Now, I'm not a theologian, and only my daughter would say I speak Greek. But I don't think something is making sense there. Because if you read this, as it reads in most of our versions of Scripture, it is absolutely saying, submit to the government. And yet, a lot of us would say, well, what about my conscience? I can't submit to this person because they are, they are saying or doing or declaring things that I don't stand for. So regardless if they're a Democrat or a Republican, what if it violates my conscience? What do I do? And yet, if we get into this, and we've seen all these stories in Scripture, and we use Peter's words in Acts 5.29, when he's asked, if we should obey God or man, he says, we should obey God rather than men. 
And that's, that's easy to say in a theoretical sense. But when you think about it, I, I read these words quoting Voltaire. He says, it is dangerous to be right when the government is wrong. And you think, you think about that boldness of Peter. These guys were, they were outlaws. In the book Testimonies to the Church, Volume 1, it describes it like this. I saw that it is our duty in every case to obey the laws of our land, unless they conflict with the higher law, which God spoke with an audible, audible voice from Sinai and afterward engraved on stone with his own finger. So you got to wonder, like, did, did anyone before us understand it like this? Because if in our near future... We're to have sincere believing individuals come to us with a Bible and say, submit to the government. This freedom of conscience stuff, go to your Bible. You submit to the authorities. You gotta, you gotta realize, like, that's a, that's a hard moment. So did anyone else understand it? Well, I was looking and I found this. Jonathan Mayhew, a clergyman of the American colonies during the 18th century, faced the Romans 13 dilemma. And he faced it head on. This is in 1750, he preaches a sermon. And John Adams, he had written down, he said, everybody read that sermon. So think about it, 1750, the United States is coming together. They're forming the Declaration of Independence. They're getting all these things together. And John Adams says, everybody has read that sermon by Jonathan Mayhew on Romans 13. And in it, Mayhew unquestionably described universal obedience and unconditional obligation to civil rulers as a heinous offense to the Bible. So they understood something that, that on the surface, there was something deeper. And I think we've, you know, Scripture describes out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing shall be established. Don't just take something random from Scripture and build a whole doctrine on it. You can find it in multiple places. And I think we keep finding this idea, God's law and, and following that with your conscience has to supersede anything else in life. As tempting as it is to take that bribe, steal that thing, do whatever it is to subvert what you know to be right, there's basically a reward longer term for doing what is right. And, and so that's often the dilemma. Yeah, but in the, in the short term, I need this money. In the short term, I could preserve my own life. And yet Jesus is saying, hey, don't forget, I went to prepare a place for you. Don't think that this is all there is and that this is all the luster that can ever be. There's something more than what we see on the surface. So our dilemma then is how to navigate this moment. Because this, I think, is becoming a very serious issue on what do I do when I'm told to do things that violate my conscience? And in talking about law, Romans is not incomplete. Down in verse 10, in Romans 13, I believe that Bible-believing, practicing Christians, and I have to be very intentional of saying that because most Christians are not that. Not reading their Bibles, not living according to what Jesus called. And when Jesus calls everyone to live according to the law, here is the best, purest, simple definition. 
Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor or to anyone. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Somehow, I think we've, we've somewhat divided the commandments between the first four and the last six. The first four deal with our relationship with God and the last six with man. And I think we as Christians and, and maybe Christianity at large is pretty guilty of, well, the first four between us and God, I love God, but I hate my fellow neighbor. And we gotta be real careful because Jesus describes it. It's easy to say you love God, but how can you say you love God whom you've not seen when you don't love your neighbor who you can see? So this idea of law in this moment is very delicate, and I just wanna encourage you Dig into this for yourself. You're going to be faced with dilemmas of conscience in your life. <clears throat> if you're young, it's going to be drugs. It's going to be other things where, well, everybody's doing it. Could be cheating on your taxes. Well, what are they going to do? But if we're in a moment where God is saying, hey, I need people true to principle. This thing, is, this thing will wrap up and I have prepared a place for you. Hold true to that promise. Hold true, there is something deeper in this story than often what we see on our feed or on the news. And that's my prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> please hold us close in these moments. Please help us to discern what is true, what is right, what is wrong. And in the world today, it is so easy to, to feel like, well, if all of my Adventist friends are doing it, then maybe it's right. Or, or if that person says it's wrong, then maybe it's wrong. But Lord, help us to have an individual experience with you where we hear your voice and we know that that whispering of conscience is your spirit and you are guiding us in the way we should go. Don't let anyone distract that. Help us to hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.